Matthew's Gospel and chapter 20. And we're going to read from verse 17. Matthew 20 and verse 17. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray for us once more. Our Father, we pray uh, this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts will be pleasing uh, in your sight. Again, we come to you at the fountain of pure water, the fountain of delight, and pray that you would refresh us. Now, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you're expecting from the next few minutes, what you're expecting from this sermon. Uh, even as I read the passage, I wonder if thoughts were beginning to formulate in your mind. You can sort of sense the direction it's going in. Uh, if not, just, just have a little scan of the passage again. What, what do you suspect, or what do you suspect the message uh, of this part of God's word is for us? And if I can put it like this, what, what's, the, what's the tone? Okay, what, what tone do you, do you sense on the horizon? Different parts of the Bible do, do have different tones. Sometimes we're kind of... Uh, we're, we're overawed by some grand vision of, of God in heaven. Sometimes we're, we're wooed and charmed uh, by a, a psalm, perhaps. Sometimes we're rebuked and corrected. But what is the tone here? Uh, I think I've preached on this passage, or its equivalent in other Gospels, at least two or three other times. And I think, well, I think I've got the tone wrong every time. Yes, that's bad news for those of you who've heard me preach on it before, which isn't most of you, um, but is one or two of you. But I think it's a passage you can easily get, get wrong. Or perhaps it's just me. 
It looks like a passage that is going to be essentially really a beat up. You need to be serving. You need to be serving. Christians are servants. Slaves, Jesus called them. And so you need to take a long, hard look at yourself and your Christian life. Are you serving? Could you really look at yourself and say, yeah, I'm a slave of Jesus and his people. Now, all those things are true, but I think they miss a vital element. And that is, and this is the principle I want to try and get at this morning. What you see, you serve. It's what you see that you serve. And by see, I don't just mean to catch sight of. I mean what you sort of look at, what you gaze at, what you see as the source of blessing. Whatever it is in life, in the universe, in your own experience, whatever it is you see, you look at, you think that is a source of blessing. That is what you will serve. Uh, There's a kind of line that goes around. It became particularly popular in the the, the second half of the the 20th century. Um, And it's the line that essentially secularism is built on. And the line goes something like this. Um, There are religious people in the world and non-religious people uh, in the world. Uh, Religious people have gods whom they serve. And secular people, non-religious people, they're free. Okay, they're not, not enslaved. What I want to say to you is that, that is just not true. Every single person in this room is religious. I know, I by no means know everybody in this room. Okay, lots of you I've never met. But I promise you, you are religious. Uh, you may not be a Christian, a Hindu, a Sikh, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jain, or uh, subscribe to one of the kind of the famous big half dozen religions. But you will be religious because something will have captured your gaze. You are looking at something, seeing something that motivates your life. Uh, some of you are Christians. You, you've given your lives to, to the Lord Jesus. But, but even then, there will be, there'll be other things that, that attract you. Okay, other things you're more, more drawn to look at, to gaze at. Other sources of life that pull you away. I read a, a while back about Victoria Pendleton, who was, um, won gold medals at the London 2012 Olympics, a fantastic cyclist. And someone asked her, what was it like when you were on the podium? She's on the podium, she gets the gold medal around her neck at her own home Olympics. What was it like? She said this, it felt like a complete anticlimax. It was very surreal on the podium. And as soon as I stepped off it, I was like, what on earth am I going to do now? I found it hard to deal with. It was like I've got no purpose anymore. And the interviewer says her, her voice then trailed away. Uh, amid such soul-bearing. But she quickly reasserted her striking ambition. Victoria Pendleton again. I soon worked out that the only thing I could do was get another gold medal. I need one. There is someone who is driven. She's got her eyes on something. She she needs a gold medal. That is what's going to make me happy. Even once she's got on the podium, she's still not happy. She needs another one. Success, in her eyes, was the route to blessing, to happiness, to joy. So she fixed her eyes on that prize and went for it. Now, few of us are as driven or as successful or as dedicated to Victoria Pendleton. 
Or what is it you fix your eyes on? Perhaps it's right move, <laughs> scrolling through, you've got the property alerts going, where, where, where's the house of my dreams? That probably reveals that you think, well, if only I can, if only I can get the house, then I'll be happy. Perhaps it's the dating app. Okay, or, or just physically looking at every eligible guy or girl who walks through the door. Well, romance is going to make me blessed. Perhaps it's the job apps. Perhaps it's something a bit less outwardly. Oh, also a bit, bit more unhealthy, rather. Uh, dodgy movies and internet sites. All these things promise blessing, promise life. And, and what I think this passage shows us is that, is that as we look at them, we very literally look at them, they suck us in to serve them. What you see, you serve. That's why the person who gets addicted to porn gets addicted. They think they're in control, but they're not. That is, we need the next fix. We need the next hit. Uh, the person who just can't get off the career ladder. They think they're free. They think they're making choices, but they're not. I need to keep going. I need to succeed. I need to get promoted. None of us are free. And so this morning, I want to see Jesus before we even think about what it means to serve him. So let's look. Uh, verses 17 to 19 first. Let's, let's see Christ. And particularly see him on the road to Jerusalem. Hey, he's going up to Jerusalem. Normally that would mean you're, he's heading towards a feast or a celebration where the Jews went up to Jerusalem, the Israelites. It was for one of the, the annual festivals. But for Jesus, it's not going to be a celebration. Verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' name for himself, title for himself. He's going to be delivered over, betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. Well, surely that's not a problem, but yes, they, the religious authorities, the vicars, the elders, the bishops, they will condemn him to death. It was the church, incredibly, that crucified Christ. You can never forget that. It's easy to you know, portray it as oh, it's all the Romans or the baddies or the Sanhedrin who sound like some sort of evil body. No, they are the church of Christ's day. They are the people of God. It is they who condemn him to death. And hand him over again to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, to be mocked, flogged, whipped, that is, and ultimately nailed to a cross until his lungs collapsed and he goes down to the grave. What do you see? What do you see there? You see the Son of God who's become man. Okay, walking along a road. And it's a road marked with pain and suffering. It's a road that he knows is heading towards utter torment, utter pain, as he heads towards the cross. And yet it's a road he does not falter on, does not step off. He's not heading, in the immediate term at least, towards glory and blessing, up to Jerusalem to get crowned. But he's heading towards mocking, flogging and crucifixion. And sometimes we think, uh, perhaps if we've been around Christian circles for a while, we think, well, Jesus' rescue all happened on the cross. And of course, the cross is the climax. But actually his whole life was headed towards the Christ and his whole life was a life of suffering for us, for his people. 
Uh, one of the catechisms, some statements of faith we sometimes use, called the Heidelberg Catechism, has a question that says this, during all the time Christ lived on earth, but especially at the end, he bore in his body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. During all the time he lived on earth, especially the end, certainly the cross, but his whole life was one of suffering in your place. And it's like the heat just got turned up and up and up and up. I sometimes wonder if we need to slow down on this, on this road to Jerusalem, uh, not, not rush to the cross. Uh, Jesus' whole life is, is bracketed by bloodshed. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. A blood was shed. There was a cutting off. Why was Jesus circumcised? Circumcision is, about, is, is a picture of, of cutting away sin. Jesus doesn't have any sin. Why was he circumcised? Well, because he was identifying with his people, those he came to save. Now, that was the day, by the way, in which his name was given to him. Just the Jewish tradition. On the eighth day, Luke tells us he was given the name Jesus. Because as his first blood was shed... He was given the name Jesus, which means he saves. His whole life is bracketed from the day eight to the final breath on the cross by bloodshed, bloodshed for his people, not for his own sins, uh, but for ours. And as he walks along the road, you see, he knows what's going to happen to him. Uh, It is one thing to have some emergency spring upon you and in the moment sort of heroically plunge forward and give your life to save someone else. We have stories like that every now and again in the media. Uh, Human beings who do incredible things for others. But Jesus, his whole life growing up, increasingly would have felt the burden of where he was headed to, bearing the wrath of God at our sins. Isaiah. In Isaiah, rather, we get a a prophecy of Jesus. It's Jesus speaking, although it's written in Isaiah. We read this. Morning by morning, he, God, awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. That is Jesus speaking. Morning by morning, he says, God woke me up and spoke to me, taught me. As God, Jesus knows all things, but as man, he had to learn. It's an incredible thing. And so increasingly, he would have learned where he was headed. I think about how you read the Bible. We read the Bible, don't we? And if we've been around a while, perhaps we know that that all the Old Testament points towards Jesus. Uh, And so uh, we read in Genesis 3 that that once upon a time, one day, God will send someone to crush the serpent's head. But in crushing the serpent's head, this, this figure will be bruised, will be wounded. And we think, oh, well, that's Jesus. Jesus would read Genesis 3, and one day it would dawn on him, that is me. Uh, We read about Abraham and Isaac, Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain, and God telling him to sacrifice his only son, and we think, well, that's, what is going on? And and, and then at the last minute, a lamb is substituted, a ram is substituted, and and we think, oh, well, that's Jesus, the substitute. Isaac goes free, and the ram dies. Jesus alone would say, huh, they go free and I die. The sacrifices of the temple. Bloods, uh, blood spilt of bulls and goats and lambs and doves. We see, ha, huh, 
there is someone dying in my place. Jesus sees there are pictures of what's going to happen to me. On and on we could go throughout the Old Testament, uh, the Bible of Jesus' day. And it will be increasingly revealed to him as he grew up, as he learned the scriptures. The horror to which he was headed. And why? Uh, Why this death? It's down there in verse 28, the last verse of our passage. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It is for, it's in place of, is what that word means. It's a substitute word. Children, that means that, that everything that happened to Jesus should have happened to you and me. Being handed over, okay, dismissed from God's presence, being mocked and flogged and crucified, coming under the anger of God. That should have happened to us, but Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom for many, in place of many. He paid the price, in other words, that we should have paid. So all his suffering, did this lifetime, 33, 4, don't know quite how many years, of suffering, climaxing in the cross, where he goes through hell for those six hours on the cross, not goes to hell under the ground, but goes through hell on the cross, bearing our sins, bearing his father's anger. All of it was for whose benefit? Yours, not his. Because he came, verse 28, to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Uh, He drinks uh, this cup we read about in verse 23. The cup is the cup uh, of God's wrath. So that you and I don't have to. And this is the God you need to see if you're ever going to serve him. Who is God to you? If if you're a a follower of Jesus already, who is God to you? And if you're trying to work out, is this... Is this for me? You know, is this uh, is this Christianity true? What what is what is God's offer to you, children? If I was to ask you, what what kind of jobs does God do? What might you say? We might say, well, He's a king, isn't He? He wears a crown. God is my king, and that would be right. We might think of the, the shepherding. Uh, God is a shepherd. He cares for us and guides us, and that is right. You might think of him as a teacher. Jesus is my teacher, and that is true. But incredibly, God is your servant. God the Son has come down to be your servant. It almost sounds blasphemous to say it, doesn't it? It makes no sense to the human mind. We, we would never cook up a religion like that. Gods are meant to be glorious and above us, and, and we serve them, and But but Jesus' kingdom is totally upside down. The greatest has become the least. The Son of Man, God in the flesh, came to serve you and me, came to serve people. I I mean, Jenny, writing my notes just just the other day, I I sort of hesitated with this. Can I really say God is is your servant to a congregation? But it's just there. Verse 28 is there. My God came to serve me you can say that is an incredible thing an incredible insight into his character his love for you 
his desire for you, how much he wants to rescue you from that cup of wrath, how much he wants to welcome you into his eternal kingdom. His mercy, his kindness, his love, willing to walk that Jerusalem road, knowing what he was headed to, and still willingly plunging into the fires for you. So what do you see? You see a servant God when you look at Jesus. Jesus, who is the true revelation of God. You see a servant God. And it's only once you've done that seeing that you can start thinking about the serving. So let's do that now. What does it mean to serve uh, this God? Because there is... Uh, No doubt that we are called to serve. Uh, Verse 26, whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. An even stronger word. Servants at least have some sort of rights. Whereas slaves, well, nothing. Uh, And this is so against our natural instincts, isn't it? Um, This is really the whole flow uh, of verse 20 uh, through to to, to 28. Jesus has just spoken about his, his death. And then up comes James and John's mum. And she kneels. She she knows Jesus is his Lord. She knows he's the king. She kneels before him. And he says, what do you want? Even that is amazing. That's a serving question, isn't it? Masters don't ask their servants what they want. Servants ask masters what they want. Here Jesus says to John's and James's mum, what do you want? And she asked, well, she asked that her two boys will get the best jobs in the kingdom. Okay, I accept you're going to be Prime Minister, Jesus, but, but, but can, can John be Chancellor of the Exchequer and James be Foreign Secretary? Okay, you're President, but, but, but can they at least be in the cabinet, the top two positions? And that's the idea of sitting at the left and the right hand in, in verse 23. Oh, sorry, in, in verse uh, 21. And Jesus just comes back to you, you don't understand what you're asking. You think you're asking for them to have a cushy life, an an easy life, glory and power. But that is not what it means to be close to me. If you want to to be on my left and right hands, Jesus, it is not going to be a plushy palace life for your boys. In fact, there's only one other place in Matthew's Gospel, that phrase, one at the right hand and one at the left comes back, and it's at the crucifixion. Which is, is probably no coincidence. The two people at Jesus' left and right hands, uh, as he is crowned king on the cross, are themselves crucified. And so he takes her to the, the meaning of the cross that we've looked at already. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Verse 22. Uh, that is a reference to uh, a picture that comes throughout the Old Testament of a, a, a cup of wrath, God's wrath at the nations. We won't turn to the passages now, but. But a place like Jeremiah 25, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make the nations drink it. This cup that, that is everything we deserve for our sin. Jesus says, I am going to drink it. Can you do that, boys? Notice the boys are just carrying behind their mother. He speaks to them. You know, he can see what, what's really going on. And then naive, yes, we can do it. Uh, 
And interestingly, we're going to come back to this. Interestingly, he does say, you will drink my cup. Now, clearly he doesn't mean you will atone for sin, like I'm going to atone for sin. But he is hinting that they will suffer. Well, we'll turn to that. And of course, the other disciples are, are unimpressed. Verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, why do you think they were indignant? Why are they cross? I suppose there's two possibilities, aren't there? They could be cross because, well, uh, James, John, that's so unreasonable to ask Jesus. You know, after all he's going to do for us, he's just told us to go to the cross. Isn't it inappropriate for you to go and ask for the best places in the kingdom? Could be that. If I'm honest, I suspect it's rather they're gutted they didn't get in first. Okay, we were kind of hoping for those places. Peter says, well, I, I'm the chief disciple. Remember, I'm the rock on which Jesus is going to build the church. He said that to me, James and John, not you. Judas says, well, I'm the, I'm the treasurer. Okay, I get to look after the money. I'm clearly at least in second best place. They're all fighting for promotion, for higher places in the kingdom. And that is what we're like, isn't it? We all want glory for ourselves. We, we want to push ourselves forward. That, that old nature in us, even as Christians, that, that, that seeks ourselves first, doesn't want to be a servant and a slave, wants to be a king. It's there. Uh, Luther, apologies to those of you with beards, by the way, just ahead of this illustration, but Martin Luther said that the that, that, that sin within us is like a beard. It grows out daily and needs cutting back daily. Okay, so culprits over here. Um, <laughs> beards are fine. But you know, it's, it's like the sin sits in, it's constantly coming out of us. It needs cutting off daily. This desire to be first. I mean, think about your own life. What stops you wanting to serve? To really give your life for the service of others. We think some things are just unreasonable. It's not, it's not fair to ask me to do that. We think some things are unworthy. I'm above that kind of job. I know someone needs to clean the toilets. I know someone needs to put the chairs away. I know someone needs, needs to sweep the floor. But I'm more gifted than that. Give it to one of the less gifted Christians. Okay, I'm above and beyond that now. Uh, part of this is about our identity, of course, how we see ourselves. Uh, I wonder, do, do you ever see yourself volunteering for things at church? Uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian, if you're part of Christ Church in particular, or if you're, you're visiting us and a member of another church, do you see yourself as a volunteer? I think that, that is a real mistake that we all make, thinking of ourselves as a volunteer. I graciously volunteer my time to, to help out at church. Is that the language of a slave or a servant? So servants don't volunteer, slaves don't volunteer. If I was to go, go back to my, my family today and you know, after lunch, we've got, got five kids now. If I was to say to my wife, look, I, I'm going to volunteer to do some parenting. Okay. Volunteer? <laughs> Not volunteer, you're a dad. I'm going to volunteer to wash up. Okay. I have kindness in my heart, just this once. I've got some time to care for you, children. I've got some time to help out. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And yet we think like that with serving, serving in the kingdom. I've got my parcels of time, I need my me time, I need my hobby time, I've got my work time. And then once I've got all those in the diary, I will see if I've got a slot left to which I can give to, which I can give to, to Jesus. Volunteer it. We're not volunteers, we are servants, and even slaves, verse 27. Um, students, there are some students here, I'm sure. Um, you don't get a pass on this, I'm afraid. 
There's no minimum age for being a servant or a slave. Children, you don't get a pass either. It's not for the over 18s or the over 21s. It's not for those in full-time employment. A student, it's one thing to, to, work, to, to really think about it. if you're a student, a uni student at the moment. Um, it is a time of life where you can get incredibly sucked into, um, into yourself, basically. Away from home, I can do all these things and I can have a great social life. And I, and I start really living for me. And I'll definitely be at church on Sunday because that's a good thing to do. But, but I, my identity is I'm a student here to enjoy life and, and maybe do a little bit of learning, but basically enjoy life for three years and then the grown-up world hits in. Well, no, we are always servants, always slaves. And the church is the primary place to serve. I'm a big fan of CUs uh, and I think they're, they're great. And I, I'd encourage you to get stuck into the CU um, if your uni has one, which I think all of them in Leeds do now. But the church is primary because God invented church and then 1900 years later we invented CUs. Okay? So they're good, they do lots of good stuff, but never let CU cancel out or trump church service. I realise there are decisions to be made there. I'm not saying that everybody has to do absolutely everything. We do have responsibility towards family, towards work, towards bosses, towards studies. But our fundamental Identity, at least from this passage, is that of servants or slaves. Uh, some of this will be formal. So, as you serve one another, as you serve the many that Jesus gave his life for, some of it will be in formal ways, rotors and leading kids' groups and setting up and all the rest of it. But lots of it's informal, I think, particularly in a smallish church like this. Lots of it is informal. That the health of our church largely, I think, going forward, particularly at this stage where we're about 60 people, 70 people, a bit more with kids, a lot of the health of the church and I think the growth of the church will come and will be dependent upon whether we're actually proactively trying to serve one another outside of the formal events. Okay, we'll try and run formal events well, all the rest of it, fine, and we need people to serve to get them going. But actually it's the, it's the looking out for others and inviting them around for coffee. It's the being willing to, to, to share the space in your house. It's the willing to give up your evening that you were going to invest in yourself watching Netflix and heading out to meet someone who's had a hard week. And it is proactive in that sense. Uh, when you walk into church on a Sunday morning, children, imagine you walk into church on a Sunday morning and there was a lift outside the door. I know there isn't, but imagine there was. Are you pressing the button to go up to the top floor or, or down to the basement? Are we meant to be going up Walking into the room, lording it over other people, verse 25. Just like the, the kingdoms of the world, just like your workplace uh, or your school, or your social group, they always have pecking orders. Or are we rather meant to be heading down? We walk down as servants. Uh, the church should have no pecking order. Children, a few years ago, I think some of my children might even have come with me on this, but we, 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 we <laughs> sounds bizarre, we took some alpacas for a walk. As you do. Um, alpacas, a bit like llamas, okay? Don't say that to someone who owns alpacas. I, they're very touchy about it, but they look pretty much like llamas to me. Anyway, you take these alpacas for a walk. Uh, we were out in Norfolk, took these alpacas for a walk. And the incredible thing about these alpacas, very few incredible things about alpacas, but the only incredible thing really about alpacas is they absolutely know what order to, to walk in and they will not change it. They know who's at the front. And that I kind of expected, okay, there's the king of the pack or whatever, that's fine. But they also know who's second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. There's about nine, um, not llamas, alpacas. And they all knew, 
Don't go to seventh if you're the one who's in eighth. They just... And we're like that, aren't we? We know the pecking order. Uh, I suspect, if you're a member here at Christchurch, I suspect none of you walked into the room this morning thinking, do you know what, I'm going to lord it over these people. Okay? I'm a great one. I'm a king. And I wonder who's going to serve me today. I am, I mean, the ones of you I do know, visitors, maybe that is you, but I suspect not. Uh, But the ones of you I do know, I'm sure no one did that. And that could kid us into thinking, therefore, we, we are actually doing what Jesus asked. But we're not. See, I think a lot of us will walk into the room, not saying, I'm going to lord it over you, but we'll walk into the room saying, look, I'm just going to keep myself to myself. Okay, I'm not going to ask people to serve me. I'm not going to boss people around. I'm just going to keep myself to myself, not order people around. But that's not what servants and slaves do. They cannot keep themselves to themselves. Okay, when the queen rings her little bell, her butler can't say, well, I'm just looking after myself, your majesty, you know, just having a bit of me time. No, he... He runs or walks. <laughs> Servants always have their eye on someone else. In some senses, that's the second thing you need to see. You need to see Jesus and how he served you, and then you need to see the needs of his people, the very same people he died for. Eyes open. And this is, as we finish, this leads me back to where I began. I used to read this passage as a guilt trip. Look what I've done for you. So it starts with Jesus talking about the cross and ends with Jesus talking about the cross. And the bit about us serving comes in the middle. And so I'd say to people, look, look what he's done for you. He's died for you. What are you going to do for him? And it had the tone, I don't think I ever quite put it in this language, but it had the tone of, how dare you not serve him? Get on the rotors. Particularly as a minister, it's really easy. Get on the rotors that I've set up. Get on the rotors, it'll make my life easier. (laughs) And it sounds so right, can't it? And there is a right sense in that. Of course it's outrageous not to serve Jesus when he's died for you. Of course it is. But I don't think that is the tone of the passage. It is not a guilt trip. The only people, amazingly, who get indignant are the disciples. Jesus doesn't, isn't described as being indignant with James and John or the others for, for asking. Rather, Jesus is saying to you today, if, if you're one of his people, I've served you. I've brought you into life. I've done it all for free. I've set you free. I've paid the price. I've given my life so you don't need to prove yourself. I've set you free from all these other masters that would enslave you. The, the, the master of academic success, the master of career success, the master of perfect romantic relationships, the master of family or wealth. All these things that will enslave you and bring so many people into, into, into servitude. I've freed you from them. So you now know the path to blessing. The path to blessing is the the path in this life of suffering, of walking with Jesus. And nothing can pull you off that path anymore. You're able to give yourself as a servant to other people because you're not prioritising yourself anymore. You can see the route to glory is the route crucifixion first, crown later, just as it was with Jesus crucified then raised suffering then glory and that's why the, the james and john can share the cup seems bizarre doesn't it when jesus says you can share this cup you will drink my cup he's not talking about them sharing in his death to save the world of course but rather just the, the fact that the church that follows jesus will likewise suffer as they 
live their lives patterned on his. So if the reason you won't serve on a particular rota or ministry, the reason you won't give up something in your, in your life, you won't serve the person who's awkward or difficult, is because it's costly, you've lost sight of the gospel. Of course it's costly. But blessing comes the other side of the cost. That the path down is the path to glory. So let me finish with this. Just Jesus' question. Verse 21, what do you want? Ask yourself that if you're one of his people. What do you want? What do you see? What are you looking at? Look at Jesus who gave himself for you. And when he asks you that question, as he does this morning, what do you want? Answer, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to see the wonder of what you've done for me, the freedom of grace. The love you've poured out on me. And I want to walk in your footsteps. Whatever that means, I don't know, Lord. Wherever it leads, I, I don't know. But I'm willing to walk the route of the cross. Because I know that through cr- the cross lies resurrection life. What do you want? Jesus says to you this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we pray and praise you. Uh, that you were willing to serve us, that though we didn't deserve it, uh, that we didn't ask for it, uh, though we're not grateful as we should be, still you gave your life that we might be free. Praise you, you paid the price. And we pray so much you would pour your spirit on us, therefore make us like you. Might we walk the same road that you walked, knowing that it is the road to glory. I thank you that glory is secure. And so will we hold lightly everything in this world, willing to give it up for the sake of bringing more people into the kingdom, of helping those on, the, on that journey home, serving and slaving in freedom. Bless us this way, we pray. In your own name. Amen.